I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, about midway through the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll read together verses 12 through 26. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and fill our meeting, fill our hearts, Fill our minds with the truth of your word. Please cause us to be conformed to it. Make this passage um, in our eyes to be lovely and wonderful and the vision that it portrays for the church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we began a short series that we're calling The Happy Church. It's a topical series. We normally do series Uh, Through books of the Bible, we're taking a short break from our exposition in the Gospel of John, and in these weeks, we're in this series we're calling The Happy Church, and the focus of this series is on working out the biblical ideals for church life that tend toward the overall happiness of the church body. So in these six or seven messages in these weeks, we're after biblical principles that help to shape the overall culture and life of the church, and that produce a healthy and happy church, happy church atmosphere uh, that is well-pleasing to God. Uh, So last week in the first sermon in the series, we said that in the happy church, the membership functions as a family. Uh, The membership of the church functions as a family. And we looked at the prevalence of family language, uh, especially in 
the New Testament, uh, how, how from the very beginning, uh, God is referred to as our Father, we His children, and we as His children are understood to be connected to one another through our connection to Him as Father. Uh, we also saw the prevalence of uh, the word of the designation brother or sister to define our relationships to each other in the church. That is, uh, the membership of Christ's church, those who have been saved by the grace of God, are to actually view the other members of the congregation as their brothers and their sisters. Uh, we also looked at the language of household or family that's used. The church is said to be the household of God or the family of God. And then we considered briefly the point of that family language, and that is that we are to actually live out our life together as a church, as a family. We're to actually see uh, the people sitting in front of us or behind us as our brothers and sisters. Uh, the church is not just like a family, it is a family. And we are to live out all the implications that that family language, that family idea gives to us as a church body. Our relationships with our brothers and sisters in the household of God are to be marked by familial love and warmth and intimacy and affection and tenderness toward one another. Well, now in this second sermon, I'd like to open up the following principle. Last week we said in the happy church, the membership functions as a family, and now this week we'll look at this following principle out of 1 Corinthians 12. In the happy church, every member is valued. In the happy church, every member is valued. You could say every member of the family is seen as indispensable, as precious, as valuable to the family. And to establish this point from Scripture, I've turned your attention this morning to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, in some ways, is a very simple passage. Paul uses a very simple image, the image of a body. And, and, and that is to parallel who we are in the church. And just as the body has many members, so the church has many members and yet makes up one body. That's the image Paul is going to use. So there's three headings we'll look at to sort of frame our thinking around 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. And the first of those headings is this. All the members are united together in one body. Very simply, I just want us to see this in verses 12 and 13. All the members are united together in one body. So looking on again at verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul here is using the imagery of a body to illustrate the unity of the church. And the image is quite simple, just like the body has many members and yet forms one organic whole or one organic unity, so the church has many members that make up one united body. Paul says, verse 12, for just as the body has one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, meaning so it is with the body of Christ. The language we were working with last week was the language of family. The church is a family. Uh, now the language here uh, describes the church as a body. It's said to be the body of Christ. And though there are many members of the body, hands and feet and eyes and ears, etc., those many members make up the body of Christ, which possesses an organic unity as the members are vitally connected one to another. 
Uh, so all the members of the body go wherever the body goes. All the members of the body are animated by the same heartbeat. All the members of the body depend mutually on the overall health of the body. That's what I mean when I say the members are vitally connected to one another. They're connected to each other as a hand is connected to an arm, is connected to a torso, is connected to a heart. We're vitally connected to one another in the church. And then Paul says, verse 13, for in one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Our unity as a body is further established by Paul here in 1 Corinthians 12 by our common baptism and our common communion with the Holy Spirit. There aren't many spirits that indwell God's people. There's one Holy Spirit that indwells each of God's people and unites us all. The Spirit of God dwells in all of us, and we have all been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Paul says a similar thing in Ephesians 4. There in verses 1 through 6, no need to turn there. But you can pick up on some of the parallel language. There the concern is also for the unity of the body. Paul says this in Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There in Ephesians 4, the concern is very similar to the concern in 1 Corinthians 12, and that is that we would actually be eager to maintain unity in the church as a body is united. United in one baptism and one spirit and one faith, one Lord, one God and Father who is over all and in all. So again, in our text, Paul says, for in one spirit, we all were baptized into one body. Now, who is the all there? We were all baptized into one body. Well, he says, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Paul is going right to the heart of significant and controversial distinctions that would have been present in the Corinthian church. That gathering, you would have had Jews and Greeks in the same body. And if you're well-versed in the New Testament, you would know that that distinction between Jews and Greeks pretty much goes to the heart of every sort of distinction that there is. Uh, culturally, ethnically, um, in terms of things like preference and taste, customs. Uh, perhaps, in that context in particular, uh, the Jews were more of a disenfranchised class than the Greeks. They had class distinctions even within that one distinction of Jews and Greeks, and yet they were to be present in the same body. You have slaves are free. Uh, can you imagine uh, being a slave to a master, and you and your master are members of the same church, and you're to actually dwell in unity together, regardless of whether or not that formal relationship of a slave to a master is dissolved? You are to be one in the body, one in faith, one in the Holy Spirit, one in baptism. Well, I think we would have warrant to insert into the text popular distinctions we see in our culture today. Ethnic distinctions, socioeconomic distinctions, 
Distinctions related to background and culture, distinctions related to preferences and tastes. Paul is saying that all those distinctions and differences are present in the one body. He's not saying they disappear. We, we don't all become one ethnicity in the body of Christ. We don't all uh, immediately end up in the same economic class as everybody else. We don't all of a sudden have the same preferences and tastes in the life of the church. The point is those distinctions remain. But that's sort of beside the point. Those distinctions are just sort of, sort of vanish in the midst of this greater unity that is to be achieved. The distinctions between the hand and the feet just sort of become less relevant when you consider they're vitally connected to the same body. They're united to one another in the church. The idea is that those who are unlike each other, who otherwise would not belong together, are united together in the same body of the church, and they must be one. The many members must form one body. So what these verses clearly teach us is that unity in the church is not optional. Rather, it is essential. It's part of the very nature of of the church. And Paul's use of the body imagery indicates to us that unity in the church is part of the very essence and makeup of the church. Just like you cannot have a body if all the parts are sliced up and divided, so you cannot have a church with members who are not united together. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that all the members must be united together in one body. So that's the first very simple point established in verses 12 and 13. Now the second major heading in our opening up of 1 Corinthians 12. All the members are united together in one body. Secondly, verses 14 through 20, there is God-ordained variety and diversity in the body. So all the members are united in one body, and yet there is God-ordained variety and diversity in the body. We see this in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. We obviously know in the context, he's not talking about like one individual. He's not saying there's not just one individual in the church. No, he's, not, he's saying that there's not one type of member in the church. He's speaking about kinds of members, types of members. There's not just one kind of person in the church, not just hands, not just feet, not just eyes, not just ears. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Not one demographic of members. Not only Jews, or only Greeks, or only slaves, or only free. The church body, by definition, is diverse. The church body, by definition, by definition, by its essence, is meant to be diverse. By definition, it contains people who are unlike each other. By definition, it possesses an inherent variety and diversity. We see this in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? single type of member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The idea is that within the united body, 
There is inherent diversity. And this diversity is understood to be essential. Or else the body would cease to be a body. Because you can't be a body if you are just an ear, just a hand, or just an eye. You need all the parts working together to make up the body. So though it's a very simple image that Paul is using here, it's really a brilliant image. A body has a fundamental unity. It is, in fact, one body, but that body is made up of such diverse parts, and if you were to get rid of the parts, it would cease to be a body. Thus, the church, by definition, must be united and also must be diverse. We are not to be a church full of hands or ears or eyes. Rather, we're to be a body that is organically united, made up of a host of diverse parts, each of which perform a vital function. Listen to how Paul teases this out practically. Paul wants all of the members in the church, all of the members of the body. He would say this to us. He wants every member here to have a sense of belonging in the church. He says, verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Then verse 18, and let verse 18 enter your heart, especially if you're someone who looks upon others in the church as maybe more gifted than you, or you think, Lord, I wish I could serve in that way, or I had those types of gifts. That's what verse 18 says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Each one belongs. There's no place for the foot to say, man, I wish I was a hand. This is a church full of hands, and since I'm not a hand, I don't belong here. No, each member is to be part of the body. In other words, every kind of member belongs. Your belonging in this church is not rooted in how alike you are to the other people in the room. I'll say that again. Your belonging in the church is not rooted in how alike you are to the other people in the room. It's not like that in other spaces. It's not like that in the RNC or the DNC. You're there because you're just like the other people. You're all Democrats. You're all Republicans. Uh, It's not like that uh, at BB&T Field. We're all like each other. We're all like the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Well, I don't, but the people over there do. Uh, it's, it's not like that in the Triad Moms Facebook group. Why does that group exist? Because we're all Triad Moms, and we're all getting together doing Triad Mom things. It's not like that at AA. You're all at the AA meeting because you have a previous addiction to alcohol that you want to beat, Right? The church is completely different. Your belonging in the church is not rooted in how alike you are to the other people in the room. So you're an older person, and you walk into the church gathering, and you see a lot more younger people than older people. You are not to conclude, well, this is not the place where I belong. This is a room full of feet, and I'm a hand. I need to get out of here. And if you're a young person and you walk into the church gathering and you see a lot more older people than younger people, you are not to conclude, well, this is a room full of eyes and I'm an ear. This must not be the church for me. But don't we do that all the time? We choose our affinities. We choose our church connections 
We determine our fellowship based on commonalities. We look for people who are like us, and then we segregate. Commonalities that in the grand scheme of things are rather superficial. Now, I'm not saying that things like age, race, culture are insignificant things. But I mean that in comparison to the deep unity we possess in Christ, they do appear rather superficial, don't they? Paul, using a simple image, gets across an immensely important point. The church is not to be made up of one kind of member. We are not to have the church of ears, over here the church of eyes, and the church of hands, and the church of feet. The church should not be monochromatic. We shouldn't just look out on Sunday mornings and see a sea of sameness. There is God-ordained variety and diversity in the body. And yet we see this all the time. We over here are going to be a church for millennials. Uh, we're going to be a church over here for the poor. Uh, we're going to be a family integrated church. We're going to be a biker church. We're going to be a church for the artsy and creative people in Winston-Salem. Now, what determines the unity of churches like that? It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the shared devotion and commitment to the Word of God. It's not the one spirit uniting the many diverse members. It's common interest. Shared stage of life. What I'm trying to say is such an approach to unity is contrary to the very nature of the church. There is God-ordained diversity that should be present in the church because the unity that brings together such diversity is supernatural. The church is meant to be a miracle where people from disparate backgrounds and contexts are brought together in one body, and their belonging in the body is not based on how much alike they are to one another in common interests or hobby or shared stage of life or favorite type of music or something like that. No, their, their belonging in the body is based on the blood of Christ, which has secured a place for them within the family of God, within the body of Jesus Christ. Diversity in the church is not optional. It is essential. We considered Ephesians 3 in our series in Ephesians a year, year and a half ago. And um, in that passage, Paul talks about how God has united Jews and Gentiles together in one body. Again, there are, are not two groups under heaven that could be more dissimilar and more uh, alienated and divided from one another in the New Testament. And in Ephesians 3, God says they've been united together in one body, reconciled to one another by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that this reconciliation of disparate peoples together in one body was meant to be a cosmic display to spiritual powers in the heavenly places. Like Satan's supposed to look on at the church and it's supposed to confound him. Why are these people together? And why do they stay together? And why do they persevere together? And how come when I set up traps and even when they fall into them, they just keep persevering together? And they keep gathering Sunday after Sunday and worshiping God together and living as a family together. There's to be this cosmic display of the manifold wisdom of God in the unity of the church as the many diverse members come together to form one body. I can remember when we first planted here in Winston-Salem, meeting with one of the church planning specialists or gurus in the area, and, and he asked this question. He said, Winston-Salem is growing so fast. It's far more diverse than it ever was you know, 30 years ago. Um, and there's so many demographics, what demographic do you intend to reach? And now, with all due charity to the brother, I don't think he 
meant anything bad by that? But can you detect the, the problem with that question, or at least the assumption undergirding that question? We don't want to reach just one demographic. The beauty of the church, the, the, the wonder of the supernatural miracle-working power of the church is that it slices across all demographics, it scoops them all up, and unites them in the same body. We want to be about every type of person in Winston-Salem, every type of diversity in Winston-Salem. Diversity in the church is not optional, it is essential, which means you, brother or sister, are meant to be vitally connected to people who are unlike you in the church. The eyes and the ears are supposed to get dinner together. The hands and the feet are supposed to serve alongside one another. I encourage you, as you seek to work this out, test this with your table fellowship, with your hospitality. There should be different people around your table, not just people in the same stage of life. I so appreciate, um, I have a friendship with an older brother, he's probably 40 years older than me. And we get together once a month, once every couple of months. We were having dinner together not that long ago. And um, he said at one point, sort of tongue-in-cheek, he said, I, I love getting together with my younger friends in the church. He's actually not a member of this church. He said, I love getting together with my younger friends because when I'm with my older friends all the time, uh, all I do is talk about my ailments and, and what medication I'm taking this week and does it work or does it not or the side effects worse than the last medication or, you know. And I said, well, I like getting together with my older friends because I'm so sick of talking about nap schedules for my little ones. Now, that's humorous, but isn't there something to be seen there? Young people, the world doesn't revolve around your kids' nap schedules. Older people, the world doesn't revolve around your medication and your ailments. It was, in, in a sweet way, a funny way, very refreshing to say, it's good to be together. We're not just connecting over common life stage sort of issues and problems. We're connecting over the more substantive unity that unites us, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the place that we have in the family of God. That is the grace of God in which we stand. That is a more precious and deep unity. We um, have small groups at Emmanuel. We don't believe the Bible requires that you have small groups. We just do them because practically we find them helpful. We started off with two. I think we have three now. Maybe sometime we'll start a fourth. And um, back when we had two small groups, I was in the Clemens small group, the group that met in Clemens, met in Mike Clark's home, Ben Allen's home. And over time, the church here at Emmanuel grew faster than, than we had expected, and so more people were being added, and we weren't prepared to open up new small groups. And we noticed in our small group in Clemens, um, if, if you were in your 30s or 40s and had between two and four children, pretty much just ended up in our group. We didn't assign people back then. All the parents with young kids got together. I think it was Pastor Ben who said, no, we're not doing that. And so when we rolled out our new small groups, we deliberately put you in small groups with people you wouldn't naturally rub shoulders with. If you are in your 30s or 40s, you have two to four kids, it's not going to be that difficult to find time to get together and go to the pool or something like that. It might be harder to get together with a young couple in their early 20s who's just gotten married. It's not going to be as natural to get together with a retired couple, go out to dinner together. And so we organized the small groups based on 
The principles established in this text. That our fellowship in the church should extend to those people, not just who are like us, but those who might be very much unlike us. Whether that's in cultural background, or socioeconomic status, or ethnic status, or whatever sort of diversity you can think up. The members who need one another, and they're to be united together in one body. If you look in front of you or behind you, and you think, you know what? I'm not sure I would ever spend time with this person if we weren't both Christians. That's a good sign. This I would never make it in my ear club uh, with all the other ears in Winston-Salem. But man, don't we make up something beautiful when we gather together as the church body? this, This foot would not be valued when I get together with all the other hands. But here, this foot has a place. Together, me and this foot form a body. We're vitally connected to each other. Diversity in the body is not optional. Rather, it is essential. You must be a part of a church body made up of people, some who are very much unlike you. And that's God's good design for the church. And now the third and final point, and this is really the main point of the sermon. Each member of the body is to be valued. Each member of the body is to be valued. Verses 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So having established unity and diversity that are to be essential aspects of the life of the church. Now Paul is concerned with how we work out that unity and diversity. And his point now is that every member must be valued and esteemed. Every member, whatever his or her gifts, whatever his or her contribution to the life of the church, whatever his or her disposition or personality type, every member is to be seen as indispensable to the body. Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Like, perish the thought that we would ever adopt that attitude. We cannot allow ourselves to value one member over another. Rather, each member is understood to be vital to the functioning of the body. We cannot allow ourselves to favor some over others in the church or to look at ourselves as more important than others. To use Paul's language, there is no place for the eye to say to the hand, I have no need of you. Don't you know I'm an I? That's a very important member of the body. You're just hand. That sort of thinking has no place in the church. Every single member is understood to be indispensable. Every member is valued and esteemed, and not just valued and esteemed, but equally valued and esteemed. And not like uh, George Orwell. 
all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, right? Now, every member is to be valued and esteemed equally so. There are no VIPs, no A-listers, no privileged class, no favoritism. There is something so ugly, so ugly, and so anti-gospel about favoritism in the church. But if we're not vigilant, that can seep into the life of the church. I'm thinking about pastors who court big givers in the church, and take them out to swanky restaurants as if they're more valuable to Jesus because of their large tithe. What an unholy and sub-Christian idea. Could James have been more clear, James 2? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, symbols of affluence, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Don't get me wrong, it could go both ways. There are churches who, with some pretense of virtue, cater to poor people. Now, we're going to be a church about the down and outs of society, as though there's something more virtuous about being poor, as if we want to have a church that is welcoming to the poor but inhospitable to the rich. How about this? We show no partiality. We obey the Word of God. We treat the rich and the poor among us as equals, equal in value, equally precious to the Lord Jesus Christ. We should treat the rich and the poor as needy souls who need the Word of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the saints, equally so. There are certainly other ways the church can be guilty of valuing some over others. Have you ever noticed so many churches today, we can be guilty of this in our church, uh, they seem to cater so often to extroverts. You ever notice that? Extroverts and introverts. It just seems to me the church, in our context, caters to extroverts. You might think of the modern youth group. So if you're, um, as a young person, uh, an extrovert, naturally outgoing, you don't have any trouble being silly and spontaneous, loud and jumping into games and being very demonstrative in the youth worship and all of that, you tend to fit in quite well in most youth groups. But if you are more quiet by temperament, you're more contemplative, you don't love when the pastor says, now everybody get up and say to the person next to you, good morning or something like that. You got more on the store shelf than you do in the store window. Uh, th those among us who are more introverted uh, we, we tend to feel excluded from those sorts of settings. It's not just in youth groups. It happens in all kinds of ways. Churches that cater to and promote extroverts. Those are the ones who have the most influence in the church. Ministries that are designed to basically filter out the introverts and promote the extroverts. We can do that in our own church setting. But shouldn't we rather recognize that there's something good about extroversion and introversion? 
that God has made extroverts and introverts alike. And there are certain virtues that both practice, and both should have a place in the context of the life of the church. No introvert should come into the room and say, you know what, if I'm not happy, clappy, and I'm not raising my hands, and I'm not shouting, I can't be here. And we shouldn't be so introverted and so private and so bookish or whatever that someone who's more extroverted can't find a place in the life of the church. Churches can show partiality in all sorts of ways. We can show favoritism to the extroverted over the introverted. We can favor those with certain types of gifts. We can put such a premium on public gifts that we minimize the contributions of those who are perhaps better suited and content to serve in more private and humble ways. We can favor youth over old age or old age over youth. And I've seen both in different churches that I've been in. Churches that are perhaps so fixated on the creativity and speed and vigor of youth that older saints seem to have no place in the life of the church. And I've seen churches that so obviously favor the older generation of the church that if young people are unwilling to conform to the traditional ways of the older folks, they might as well move on and start their own church with other young people. But if we're thinking Christianly, if we're thinking biblically, if we're thinking according to Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians 12, there is no place for the young person to say, move over, old man, I have no need of you. And there's no place for the older saint to say to the younger person, you know what, you can have a say in how things go in this church when you reach my age. Till then, you just pipe down. The eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you. Don't the young and the old need each other? Don't the hands and the feet need one another to function as a body? Friends, let's not be guilty of viewing anyone in the church as unimportant or of lesser value than ourselves. Let's not show partiality or favoritism. Rather, let us create a church environment in which every member knows that he or she is valued and esteemed. Let us treasure each and every member, knowing that each and every one is indispensable to the life and vitality of the body. And each and every member is precious to the Lord Jesus who bought that soul. Let's actually seek to realize the standard that is set forth in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. You imagine having that sort of solidarity with each other, that, that if one of us here is suffering today, We're all suffering. Again, not to be silly, but you know how this is. You stub your pinky toe in the middle of the night, the whole body feels it. If one member is hurting in our church, we're all hurting. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. That's the happy church. The church in which every member is understood to play a vital part. The church in which every member is treasured and valued church that wins together and loses together, church that weeps together and rejoices together. So there you have it. All the members are united together in one body. There is God-ordained variety and diversity in the body, and each member of the body is to be valued. And now I'll just close with this thought. Um, Talking about a community environment in which People are connected to one another, not based on common interests, uh, but based upon something 
like the unity we've been talking about, being a community of diverse members that are united in one body, that sounds very nice. It just sounds very nice. I think this picture is wonderful. Every member being valued and esteemed, everyone belonging and being needed. There are lots of communities out there in the world that offer that sort of belonging. But as soon as some of those differences and distinctions emerge, you can see how quickly that sort of unity evaporates. But what I've been describing, it sounds wonderful, hopefully. What Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, it's wonderful. But I don't want anyone here to be mistaken. These sorts of dynamics, being united together, though being diverse and varied, and every single member having a place, and us valuing and esteeming one another and holding one another is precious. That is not possible. It's not possible anywhere in the world apart from the Son of God shedding His blood on the cross. So we cannot just decide, you know what, I, I want to value people who are unlike me, and, and I want to be part of a group. We're going to start a group, and we're going to be united to one another, come what may, even though we're very much unlike each other. You could try that and see how far that goes. The sort of unity Paul is talking about, the sort of unity that I am talking about, the sort of love and care that we have for one another that I'm talking about, it's a supernatural thing. It's accomplished by the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes us gather week after week, what makes us share table fellowship with one another, with people who are unlike ourselves, the reason why people in their 60s and 20s keep getting together and praying together and sharing life together, people with no kids, people with lots of kids, is because God through Christ, through what He has accomplished on the cross, has made us one, has united us together in one body, has equally paid for our sins, shed His blood for us. We all recognize that as sinners in need of grace, we've been saved by the Lord Jesus and been introduced into a new family. Not only are we now reconciled to God, but we're reconciled to one another through what our Savior has done. Don't think you can get this. You can find this. You can have this through anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you've been listening to this sermon, you've been reading 1 Corinthians 12, maybe you didn't even know the Bible ever described the church in this way, and you say, this sounds very nice. Couldn't imagine being part of a community like that. You need to know the entryway is through salvation in Jesus Christ. And the good news is He offers Himself to any sinner, any sinner, no matter what you've done, no matter what's in your background, no matter what baggage you brought in with you to this place. He says to you, if you come to Me knowing your need of Me, repenting of sin, turning from sin, and believing on Me and trusting in Me for salvation, you will be saved. And you will belong in this community of the church. You will be given a place in the body of Christ. And all the beauty and wonder of these dynamics that make up this happy church, you can know in your own experience. Let's pray together.
Our Father, I think it was prayed at the start of the service that we would leave this place more like Christ than we were when we first walked in. We pray, Father, that you would help us now and in the days ahead to really live out what it means to be the body of Christ, to really look more and more like Him through our unity with one another, our love for one another. Pray that that love and that care and that commitment and devotion to one another would persevere through difficult experiences together, that it would persevere through uh, any number of sinful offenses we might introduce toward one another, uh, that it would persevere uh, unto the last day. May we say devoted to one another's well-being, committed to one another's spiritual good. May we truly live like a family. May we truly function like a body. May we value even the least among us, give honor to everyone. We pray that it would be true in our experience that when one member suffers, all suffer together. And when one is honored, all rejoice together. It's a wonderful thing what you have made the church to be. By your grace, by the power of Christ, may we truly realize that here in our church setting. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.